All right, so we're going to go to Revelation 20 again, this time verses 10 through 15, but I'm going to back up. So to bring us into our full context here, I'm going to read beginning in verse 7, but then we get into the teaching, we'll pick it up in verse 10. So Revelation 20, verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So we saw at the beginning of uh, chapter 20, right after the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, right at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, that Satan was bound, cast into the abyss. He will be released and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them, and this is where we will pick it up, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books." The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father God, we just once again lift up this time in in your word. We ask that you would anoint and bless the teaching of your word that would have an impact in every heart and every mind here today, Lord, we thank you that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We ask you to bless this time of study now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the devil who deceived them, all those who rebel against God here at the end of the millennium, and that is his greatest role as the deceiver, the father of all lies, as Jesus called him, he was cast into the lake of fire. He was, but it's, it hasn't happened yet. But in the context of Revelation and the ongoing narrative at this point, at the end of the millennium, which hasn't begun yet, there are actually some who think it has. And if that's the case, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> but there is one stream of theology that believes we're already in it. I don't know how they could possibly come to that conclusion. At any rate, at the end of that time, Satan is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Or it can also be translated burning sulfur. The lake of fire and burning sulfur. Have you ever been around that strong sulfuric odor? It's not very pleasant, is it? Perhaps another aspect of the torments of hell will be, because it's called the lake of fire, I had this thought that perhaps one of the aspects of torment in hell would be an eternal sensation of being adrift in a sea of fire. And so we see that even as it gets better and better for the righteous, we go from glory to glory. We go from the blessings of this life, which sometimes, frankly, we get our eyes off of, don't we? There's that old hymn, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. I've tried to make it a habit to always start my prayers 
with thankfulness, thanking God for his blessings. Because it's easy for us in the midst of everyday life to kind of focus on the negative, isn't it? To forget about the blessings. When you go to God in prayer, to always be focused on what's wrong, all the problems and so forth. And so it's very important. In Philippians chapter 4, it says we're to bring everything, verses 6 and 7, to God in prayer with thanksgiving, make our requests known to him. So I always try to do that. I'm sure I don't succeed 100% of the time, but I think it's important to do that. And so even as it gets better and better for you and I, the world sees death as the end, the final tragedy, and yet for the believer, as I've said so many times, physical death is actually a promotion. We now go to the next level. You know, our, the moment our spirits leave our bodies, that spiritual being that is the very core and essence of who we are goes into the presence of God. And then, at that specific moment in time, when God decides it's time for the saints that are still alive on the earth to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air, we're told in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them with the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And so it, it just gets better and better for you and I. We rule and reign for, with Christ for a thousand years in the millennium, and after that, a glorious eternity with God. But even as it gets better and better for you and I, it just gets worse and worse for the ungodly. Again, as I've said so often, those who choose not to follow God, those who reject Christ, their ace in the hole, they think, is at least when they die, they'll have some peace, but that's not the case. We see here that they will ultimately wind up with the devil, the beast, the false prophet, in the lake of fire. It says that they will be tormented, the beast, the false prophet, Satan, tormented day and night forever and ever. So the beast, the false prophet, the devil, along with those we'll see shortly about to face the great white throne judgment, that final judgment that takes place at the end of the millennium. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so this is another confirmation. You see, everything in God's universe is balanced. Some people acknowledge God, but they scoff at the idea of a devil. You can't have one without the other. God created Satan. He's a created being. He does exist. He is our adversary, but in Christ we have the victory over him. But this is another confirmation that punishment, again, like I say, the, the ungodly, are, they think their ace in the hole is, well, at least when I die, I'll be at peace. No. Even as there is eternal reward for those who acknowledge God, those who receive Christ as Lord and Savior, those who confess their sins and repent, there is eternal reward awaiting us. The other side of the coin for those who reject him, eternal punishment. So punishment, just like reward, is forever. That's why you don't want to go there. So verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. Now we saw when Christ returns, the second coming at the end of the tribulation, 
beginning of chapter 20, we're there with him. The 12 apostles are on 12 thrones, judging the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. We are there on thrones with Christ, judging over the Gentile nations. That's at the beginning of the millennium. This is the final judgment at the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the wicked. You and I will have already stood before the Bema seat and received our rewards. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. If anyone's work which he has built on it, it being that firm foundation of Jesus Christ, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, remember Paul talks about the difference between you know gold and silver and precious gems, symbolizing things that we do in this life that have eternal value and eternal meaning, and then he contrasts it with wood, hay, and stubble, remember? You can't burn a diamond, can you? Now you can heat up gold, silver, platinum, whatever. It'll liquefy, but then as it cools down, it just comes right back into that solid form again, doesn't it? So that's why gold and silver and precious metals have had value over the centuries because they're, in a sense, imperishable. Like the, the diamonds, the precious stones, and so forth. But the wood, hay, and stubble, man, they'll light up just like that, won't they? And so Paul says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, endures beyond this life, has eternal meaning, value, purpose, and so forth. He will receive a reward. And so these are, even as these things that we do in this life that endure over into eternity, they have eternal value, so we will receive eternal rewards. The rewards we receive in this life are not permanent, are they? You, might, you work hard at your job, uh, you can achieve some financial success. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust decay. So the greatest rewards that this life has to offer are temporary. The old expression, you can't take it with you. But then to, just to show how demented our world has become, they replaced you can't take it with you with he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard that one? That's got to be the ultimate hedonistic expression, doesn't it? It's sick, really, when you think about it. He who dies with the most toys wins. But hey, he who dies does not get to take those toys with him. Somebody else is going to get them until they break and fall apart. So, we will have already been before God's Bema seat, received our rewards, hopefully. We've already been on our thrones ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years when this event takes place at the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment. And then it tells us him who sat on it. Some believe this is the Father, some believe it's Jesus. Surely both will be there. They are one God and three persons. But the throne of God, from those whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. As we see in chapters 21, 22, we'll get to in the next few weeks. In the new Jerusalem, on the new earth, there'll be a new heaven, a new earth. 
There will be no more sun, moon, or stars. God himself will be our light, we're told. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light. So if God is literally there in our midst, we won't need any other light source. So from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So for those about to be judged and cast into the lake of fire, the last remaining sources of light for them have been eliminated. That's why the scriptures refer to it as outer darkness. So verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Now that's an interesting phrase in and of itself. Think about that. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before... How does a dead person stand before God? Because there is also a resurrection of the unrighteous. The reason they're dead is because they did not embrace Christ in this life. They're not born again. They're not saved. We have eternal life in Christ. They will have eternal death. But eternal death is still a state of conscious existence. Think about that. No wonder people who have rejected God don't want to have an afterlife. They just want to die and have it over with. But it's not that simple. So I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So no matter who you are in this life, president, ditch digger, wealthy, poor, famous, unknown, Einstein, illiterate, none of it's going to matter then. All will be held accountable by God. There's no pardon for the lowly and no pass for the bigwig. No get-out-of-jail-free card. And what's the determination here based upon? Books were opened. What books? Well, first of all, it would have to be the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, for this is the standard by which men are judged. God's revealed truth to the human race. John 12, 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. God has clearly laid it out for us. Romans chapter 1 talks about the fact that we are without excuse. Even the most remote tribesmen living in a jungle somewhere who's never read a Bible, who's never heard the gospel, according to God, they're without excuse because he's revealed himself through his creation. But then we have the clearly defined and delineated truth of God in the scriptures which have now reached to every corner of the globe Jesus said great commission Matthew 28 the gospel would go out to the whole world and it has he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him the word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day in the last day Romans 3.19, now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, if you're not in Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or pagan, whatever, if you're not in Christ, then you're under the law. And Paul makes this point in the book of Romans. The law kills why? Because the law proves our sinfulness and holds us accountable. 
The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. When we're in Christ, we're no, no longer under the law. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not to obey God's laws. It simply means the law can do nothing but condemn us because we can never keep it. We can never be perfect. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the books were opened. I would say first the Bible. And then the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So secondly, books containing the records of what every human being did while on earth. And even as believers, I find that a little scary, right? God says we'll be held accountable for every idle word. We're all going to be humbled quite a bit when we stand before him. But thank God for his grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. Otherwise, we'd have no hope. And then another book was opened. So there's several books involved here, which is the book of life. And as we study the scriptures, we find that this book contains the names of all those who possess eternal life in Christ. David spoke of it. Very interesting. Psalm 69, 28. Let them, his enemies, he's referring to his enemies here, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. And so there's another insight here. As some theologians, Bible scholars believe, I tend to embrace this belief. The book of the living is God's book of every human being that's ever lived and existed on this planet. And David says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. We just read how the dead, small and great, standing before God. So even though you may exist, you can move from one category to the other. When you die physically, if you've not been born again, as we'll see momentarily, then you will experience what the Bible calls the second death. And so at that point, you're no longer in the book of the living. You're in the book of the dead. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So the book of the living, every human being that's ever lived, the book of the righteous is the book of life where your name is written in as a born-again follower of God, Jesus Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb, Paul spoke of it, Philippians 4.3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul states, presents, clarifies the fact that anyone who ha has evidence of a true born-again relationship with God a true conversion, their name is written in the book of life. Revelation 3.5, Jesus himself, he who overcomes, we've talked about overcoming before, the world, the flesh, the devil, overcoming the onslaught of false teaching, false doctrine, designed to lead people away from the truth, away from the true gospel, the true Jesus, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name out, name from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Very, very important. And so, again, this final judgment has to do with a judgment of the wicked who've been biding their time in Hades, if you will, Sheol, will stand before God and based upon all of that evidence, consigned to an eternity in the lake of fire. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. So again, we've read about the first resurrection, and we talked about how it comes in stages, beginning with Jesus Christ, the first fruits of all those raised from the dead. And we talked about those, the, the progression there. The first resurrection is the resurrection unto eternal life. This is the second resurrection, reuniting the souls of the wicked with some type of body. Again, it Wow, I mean, if you start to think about it, it could be extremely disconcerting. Even as you and I will receive these immortal, eternal, imperishable, incorruptible, glorified bodies. The Bible talks about us being literally beings of light, radiating the light of God. Beautiful. What might the resurrected body of the unrighteous look like? I don't know if you've ever seen a movie. I guess there's a book, too. The, the uh, Picture of Dorian Gray. Anybody ever seen that? This guy is a, is a womanizer, profligate, whatever you want to call him, handsome, and uh, he wants to retain his eternal youthfulness. And so some kind of magical thing happens where this guy paints his portrait and he retains his youthfulness. Everybody else is aging, getting old, dying. He's still youthful. But as he becomes more and more wicked, he keeps this painting hidden in a room in his house with a cover over it. And every time he lifts the cover, depending on what sinful act he's entered into next, the picture becomes more and more ugly and grotesque. So on the outside, he still looks great. But this picture is reflecting all of his sin, all of his evil, all of his wickedness. And I mean, it becomes absolutely disgusting. Interesting to think about what the resurrected body of the unrighteous might look like. And it won't matter because they're going to be dwelling in eternal darkness anyway. This is the second resurrection, reuniting the souls of the wicked with some type of body in which they will suffer for all eternity. Again, if we have complete glorification in Christ, body, soul, and spirit, then they will have complete opposite body, soul, and spirit. We read about the first resurrection in verses 5 and 6. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, referring to those who had already risen at the second coming. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is our legacy. This is our heritage in Christ. 
This is also where Philippians 2, 9 through 11 comes into play. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Now again, if you're under the earth, yeah, you know the term six feet under? So how are they going to bow before him? Because they will also be raised, but not unto eternal glory and paradise, unto eternal punishment. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is the final, I don't know what word to use, insult. It's not really an insult, but the, the epitome of all that this represents is, and I've told you this before too, I know you know it and you understand it, it doesn't matter if you receive Christ in this life or reject him. It matters in the sense that if you receive him, you're going to live forever. If you don't, you're not. But what I mean by it doesn't matter is at the end of the day, even those who refuse to bow the knee before him in this life are still going to have to do it. The only problem is at that point, it won't do you any good. It'll just be the final knife to the heart, if you will. Realizing, here I am, I'm bowing before Jesus Christ. Why didn't I do it when I had the chance? Why, not, why didn't I do it when it could have saved me for eternity? Boy, if people could only understand that and realize that. You can't fight against God. Remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Paul? There's an old expression, you can't fight City Hall. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But I'll tell you one thing, you cannot fight against God and win. And he doesn't want you to fight against him. He wants you to embrace him. He wants you to love him even as he has proved his love for you by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. What, what a tragedy. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. The final and ultimate tragedy is that these people are still going to have to bow before him anyway. And then they will be cast out for all eternity. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they were judged, each one according to his works. That's not good. I've told you before, don't ever tell God that you want him to give you what you deserve. And there's, there's some of that, you know, woven into this word of faith teaching and doctrine where I, your word says it, I demand it, you better give it to me, God. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't ever tell God, I want you to give me what I deserve. In fact, mercy, okay, so we have this two-sided coin, right? On one side is grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That means you don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. He gives us that which we do not deserve. And I told you how I like to start my prayers with thankfulness. And sometimes I'm just honestly just embarrassed before God because I don't deserve it. I don't deserve what he's done for me in my life and what he's given me. And I know it. But I still got to thank him for it. But I'm kind of embarrassed because I know I don't deserve it. Okay, so that's grace. The other side is mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. You see? What do we deserve? Eternal punishment. 
But by the grace of God, as we place our faith in him, in Jesus Christ, as the Savior of our souls, we become recipients of his unmerited favor, and we also are blessed by knowing that we're not going to get what we deserve because Jesus took it for us. He took our punishment. And so, they were judged each one according to his works. This is not good. All those who put their trust in Jesus will not be judged according to what they have done, but according to what he has done. Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So Isaiah makes it perfectly clear. And Isaiah was obviously a strong believer, a prophet, a man of God. And just like the Apostle Paul who said towards the end of the, his life, I am the chief of all sinners. I recently heard someone speaking, supposedly preaching the gospel, representative Christ, and so forth. And they were telling the, the crowd, the audience, you are not sinners, you are righteous and the basic teaching is, if you still believe you're a sinner, you're not saved. Really? Then what about Paul? Because he didn't say it past tense. He said, I am the chief of all sinners. I would say the minute you start thinking you're, you're totally righteous, you're in trouble. Romans 3.10, Paul writing in the New Testament, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And I offended a lady, a lady attending church here years ago whose son was a, actually a prominent pastor within the Calvary Chapel movement. And she got very upset with me because I said, we are not righteous. We aren't. Jesus is righteous, and he comes to live inside of us and graciously imparts his righteousness to us. But you know, no Jesus, no righteousness. I have none of my own. It all comes from him. And when you're seeing unrighteousness exude from me, that means I'm not walking right. I can't have righteousness without the one who is righteous. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So anyone who is to be judged on the basis of what they themselves have done is doomed. We see these folks. The books are open. They were judged, each one, according to his works. The good news is you and I will not be judged according to our works. You see, our good works count for nothing as related to our salvation. We are saved by grace. So as believers, we are not judged according to our works, but as we've seen already with the Bema seat, our works will be judged to determine what rewards, if any, we are to receive. You see the difference? The unrighteous will be judged based upon their works, the righteous, and again, we're only righteous because of Jesus, we won't be judged according to our works, but our works will be judged to determine what rewards we might receive in eternity. You see the nuance there? Big difference, though, big difference. 1 Corinthians 3.14, I'll read it again. If anyone's work which he has built on it, the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. If anyone's work endures, it has eternal value. 
And see, the thing is, folks, we could be doing all the right things, but we might be doing them for the wrong reasons. We might be giving off an outward appearance of being very holy, very righteous, what have you, doing good deeds, doing good works. But if our inner motivation is wrong, then I would suspect it's not going to stand up for eternity. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward, and this will be an eternal reward, because we will by that time be dwelling in the realm of eternity. All right, verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And what this means, death and Hades represents both the physical bodies and the souls of the unrighteous. Hades is the temporary dwelling place of the souls of the unrighteous. Death and Hades, the physical body and the spirit are the soul cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. And this is the final destination of all who reject Christ. Always burning but never consumed. Always flailing and sinking but never drowning. By no means an eternal cruise. If anything, an eternal shipwreck. Verse 15, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, if your name's not written in the book of life, nothing else matters. That's the whole ball game. How do you get your name written into that book? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by accepting him as your Lord and Savior, accepting him as the sacrifice for your sins. And again, as I've said before, I really believe that believing is a choice. It's a step of faith, obviously. To reach out to God. He's already reached out to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's our move. The next move is ours, if we're going to reach out to Him or not. Anyone not found written in the book of life? Certainly, no one in this multitude about to be cast into the lake of fire their names are not found there. They're not written there. The book is used to prove the absolute justice of their punishment. Well, if your name was in the book, all would be good, but it's not. And that, again, is your choice. If people could just logically, reasonably, rationally look at all the evidence, embrace the truth, Their names could be written in the book of life as well. They were cast or thrown into the lake of fire. So this concludes the sad story of the unrepentant members of the human race who have repeatedly rejected God and refused to acknowledge him as creator and king. This is at the end of a thousand-year reign of Christ where we have a perfect world to live in. And again, this is the final proof that God is right and we're wrong. You'll hear some 
psychologists and uh, sociologists and so forth say, well, you know, we're really just a product of our environment. If you put a newborn baby in the perfect environment, no anger, no arguing, no fighting, only love, only peace, only tranquility, and you can take care of the baby and your plants at the same time. You can play music for both of them. No, that the wrongful thinking and belief of the unsaved world, if you will, the unbelieving world is that uh, we're born into this life, a blank slate, neutral. If we program good things into the person, they will be good. You know, there's an element of truth in that, but at the end of the day, the Bible says we're born in sin, we're conceived in sin, and we're born with a sin nature. And the millennium will be a thousand years of peace on earth the way God intended it, before the flood, before the fall. And yet at the end of the day, we saw last week how massive numbers of people will follow the deceptions of the devil, rise up against Jesus Christ and his saints. And so, when all is said and done, God will be proven right, and all of those who follow him will be proven right. So if you're looking for vindication or validation in this life, forget it. It's not going to happen. In fact, we see more and more every day how people are becoming more antagonistic against God, against Jesus Christ, against our faith. Have you seen that? So I think some people get derailed or sidetracked in their walk with God because they're somehow expecting that uh, people are going to like us for being Christians. <laughs> there have been seasons back in the Jesus movement days. There was a time when they were playing you know, gospel-oriented music on secular radio stations. And for a while there, it was kind of cool to be a Jesus freak and so forth. But that wore off after a while. If you're looking for vindication or validation in this life, you are going to be disappointed. We have to receive our validation and our vindication from God. And at the end of the day, after the rapture of the church, after the tribulation, after the millennium, at that great white throne judgment, when it's finally settled and sealed once and for all, God will be proven right, his people will be proven right, and sadly for the wicked, it's the beginning of the end that never ends. For the righteous, it's the end of the beginning of an awesome, glorious eternity, so wonderful we can't even begin to imagine how beautiful it will be. And that's why it is important for us to be in the Word of God. And David talks about meditating on God's Word day and night. I know I fall short in that area, I don't know about you. But the thing is, the glory and the majesty and the magnitude of God's eternal kingdom is so massive that if we're just kind of slogging through life on a humdrum basis, we're never even going to begin to get the picture of how amazing it really is. Even, only as we really dig in and immerse ourselves in prayer and the Word of God can we even begin. And we need that picture. We love him. We haven't seen him, but we love him. Peter talks about that. We haven't seen these things with our physical eyes, but through the Spirit of God, we can be enabled to have a greater understanding, a, a better grasping of these things, so that 
you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, another old hymn, look full in his wonderful face, right? And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's stand. Let's stand. Well, Father God, we, we're excited, I think we should be anyway, that what we see happening around us, Lord, we know that we're closer and closer every moment of every day to seeing you face to face. All indicators, Lord, are that we are in the last of the last days. Lord, many people are scared, many are confused, many are deceived. But we thank you for opening our eyes, opening our ears. You said in your word, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes and ears so we might see and hear. But Lord, there are many others whose eyes and ears are not open. And we humbly beseech you that you would open those deafened ears and those blinded eyes of those near and dear to us, our loved ones, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, Lord. There are so many that are lost. And Lord, we do ask your forgiveness for the times when we're not as active as we should be in leading others to Christ. Father, we ask your forgiveness for just becoming comfortable in our salvation and uh, resting on that. We ask you to give us a burden for the lost. It's important, Lord. We need that. We ask that you would stir our hearts towards those who could very likely spend eternity right where we've read today in that lake of fire. Lord, and even as glorious and amazing and wonderful as our eternal existence will be with you in paradise, it'll be just the opposite for them. As wonderful as it will be for us, it will be that horrible for them. Lord, we do need you to give us a heart for the lost, a heart of compassion like that of Jesus. When he looked out on the people and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, his heart went out to them, Lord. We ask that you give us that heart. We confess before you, Father, today, in and of ourselves, we don't have it. We are innately selfish, self-centered, sinful. But we thank you that you've promised to fill us with your Holy Spirit. You said you love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, Lord, and we need your Spirit now more than ever in these last days. And Lord, I pray now for those here this morning or those that are not here this morning that are struggling with health issues. I didn't even ask for hands. Lord, you know who they are. We, we lift up those struggling with COVID that you would pour out your healing oil upon them and renew them and restore them and deliver them from this affliction. Lord, other things, flus, even allergies are kicking up already. Lord, I lift up each one. Lord, whether it's a hangnail or a cancer, it's all the same to you. Nothing is too difficult for you. And Lord, we pray for healing and deliverance for your people, that we might give you the praise and the glory and the honor in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we lift up not only those who are physically ill, but those who are struggling mentally, emotionally, spiritually, inner conflicts, Lord, and we know sometimes those are more tormenting than the physical illness, those things happening in our hearts and our minds, the anxiety, uh, the depression, the despair. Lord, we ask that you would deliver each one who's struggling in those areas, pour out your spirit upon them, uplift them, encourage them, strengthen them. 
Speak the truth to them, Lord. We know the devil loves to whisper lies into people's ears. And Lord, when we start listening to those, things can go very badly. We ask that you'd open ears, open hearts, open minds to your truth. Lord, you said that your truth would set us free. So we pray for those afflicted in those areas as well. We pray for those with financial issues that you would pour out your blessings upon them. Open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on them, Father. Pray for wisdom and guidance that we could be good stewards and managers of the resources you've given us. We ask your forgiveness for the times when we have fallen short and not handle our money as well as we should have. Lord, sometimes it's beyond our control. People lose jobs, disasters happen, accidents happen. We ask for your provision to be poured out upon your people this very day. And we finally, we do pray for healing of relationships that may be damaged or even broken. Lord, we know that you can bring healing, reconciliation, restoration. Pray for marriages that are struggling. Lord, we know that the enemy hates strong marriages. He hates Christian marriages because they are a reflection of our relationship with you. We pray for healing and help for those relationships, Father. Friendships, marriages, partnerships, whatever it might be, Father. We ask for healing and restoration. We bless you, we honor you, we praise you, and we ask that you'd receive now our final offering of praise here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.